Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, Reverend Professor Ian James will question whether climate change is a challenge or swindle, and present some of the certainties, complexities, and controversies from the science of climate change. Thank you very much. Somewhat against my better judgment. Um, I was persuaded to adopt this title. Uh, to me, it's a bit confrontational, and I'm not quite sure that's the, uh, uh, the right thing, really. Uh, I have to say that uh, one of the themes of my talk, I think, is that good science and conviction politics don't necessarily mix very well. Uh, and... Uh, we need to be very careful when we uh, get into polarised positions where debate is always seen as supporting one side or another. And uh, in that sense, I think that uh, science actually is quite different from a lot of other public discourse. So just by uh, way of uh, uh, preface to what I'm going to say, let me just say a little bit about that. Our scientific understanding of subjects like climate change is most of the time, at any rate, a matter of incremental progress, building on what we already know, uh, uh, refining our understanding, refining our data, our measurements, refining our mathematical models of what's going on and trying to understand uh, rather more fully the system that we're concerned with. Now and again, of course, we do have a scientific revolution, a paradigm shift. It's the sort of thing in most subjects which only happens uh, once in a lifetime, if that uh, Newton uh, being... Uh, supplanted by Einstein, for example, but it doesn't happen very often. And I contrast that with what I see in the public and media area where debate is very volatile, it's very adversarial, and from week to week almost you can see the pendulum of opinion swinging so that... uh, in the area of climate change, uh, one week uh, all the newspapers are telling us that climate change is upon us, we've got to take it seriously, we need to do this, that and the other, and in another week it's all a load of baloney, it's, uh, it's all a, a, a conspiracy or, or what have you. And I think it's not helped by the way in which we like in public debate to have an adversarial approach. If we talk about climate change, then we have to have a pro-climate man and a climate sceptic and have them slug it out. But that isn't a very good representation of how the science is working. So what I'd like to do is to try and develop some arguments which are based on the way I think science should work. That is to say, we're going to start by looking at the things that we all, or virtually all of us, can agree on. The, 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 the basis, the incontrovertible, 
or nearly incontrovertible uh, facts on which we're going to build. And then I'm going to move to some of the less certain issues, some of the areas of greater uncertainty. So let me start with what I regard as, I'll have put, put down here, indisputable facts. Um, I think these are, that's, that's a very strong way of putting it, but you get the idea. The first starting point for what I want to say is the fact that carbon dioxide levels in the Earth's atmosphere have been rising and rising substantially for the last 200 years or so. And I'll show you a bit more about that in a moment. Secondly, we've known since the early 19th century about the effect of carbon dioxide on the transmission of electromagnetic radiation, heat, light, and so on. Uh, and that leads us to what's sometimes called the greenhouse effect, miscalled the greenhouse effect, I should say, incidentally. And I'll tell you a bit about the greenhouse effect. And then we have to ask, well, where, why is carbon dioxide in the atmosphere rising? Where is this carbon dioxide coming from? And that leads us to uh, think about what we call the carbon cycle, the sources and sinks of carbon dioxide in the Earth atmosphere system. So, let me start off with the concentration of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere. And I have to say that this diagram, uh, stepping off my uh, scientific uh, uh, um, a dispassionate plinth for a moment, this graph is just about the most frightening graph that I think I know in my science. It shows the concentration of atmospheric carbon dioxide over the last thousand years ago or so, from the year 1000 AD up to, well, just before the present, actually. And for centuries, the levels of carbon dioxide bounced around a little bit, but within... Uh, a short distance of 280 parts per million. In the early 19th century, that started to change. Levels started to rise, somewhat gently at first, but more and more rapidly, very rapidly through the uh, 20th century, even more rapidly now. Uh, this particular graph was taken from what's now a fairly elderly publication, and it stopped, uh, I think, in 1995. Um, I have added on uh, where we are now. So instead of 280 parts per million, the latest data that I can get hold of, which is for 2009, puts us up at around 387, 388 parts per million. In other words, levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide have risen by something like 40% since, uh, since the, uh, uh, the late 1800s. Well, does that matter? 280 parts per million is not a lot. The difference between 280 parts and 380 parts, you might say, is not very significant. The point is that you don't need a great deal of carbon dioxide to have quite a dramatic effect on how the atmosphere behaves. So I'd like to introduce you to a little bit of atmospheric physics, 
but let me make it a bit more homely with an analogy to start with. Here is a jug of crystal clear Thames Valley water. Transparent. It lets light through without any difficulty. And alongside it is a teaspoon that contains two or three drops of milk. I should add that that thing behind is our toaster. Uh, I, I first produced this picture for a lecture I had to give at Lambeth Palace in front of his grace, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, my wife said, you can't show the Archbishop our toaster. <laughs> and uh, my reply was, well, he has the Anglican communion to worry about. I think our toast is the least of his problems. Anyway, let's ignore the toaster and concentrate on the jug of water. Let me take those two or three drops of milk and tip them into the jug. And, of course, you know what will happen. The milk will spread out into a cloud. And if I mix everything up thoroughly, that's how I'll end up. That jug of water with only, um, as it happens, a few hundred parts per million of milk in it is now completely opaque. It is filled with a cloudy suspension of little fat particles which scatter light very, very effectively. Carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere behaves in a somewhat analogous way. Let me show you two pictures of the Earth from space. This is a picture of the Earth taken from a meteorological satellite orbiting above the Earth. This one actually orbits above uh, Africa, so it takes in the European sector. This picture is taken in the wavelengths of visible light. It's what you'd actually see if you were sitting on the satellite. And in visible light, you can see that our atmosphere is pretty well totally transparent. Well, apart from the 30% of it or so that's occupied by cloud. But, for example, over here, over the Sahara, well, if you're sitting in the front row, you'll be able to see the patterns of rock and sand on the surface of the Sahara. And uh, up here, you can see the white arc of the snow-covered Alps and so on. I hasten to add that the uh, white line around the edge of all the continents has, of course, been added by the computer. It's not really there. Um, my point has gone on strike, too. See if the spare one works. Yes, it does. Contrast that now with exactly the same view taken at the same instant from the same satellite, but this time with a sensor that is sensitive to infrared radiation. Radiation which, of course, you can't see, but you can feel. You know, if you put your hand near a hot iron or a radiator, you can feel heat from uh, infrared wavelengths. And this is what the atmosphere looks like in infrared light. It is nearly totally opaque. It's as if it's been filled with a milky haze, rather like that jug of water. 
somewhat denser in some places, somewhat less dense in other places. But in fact, nowhere here can you see the Earth's surface. Nowhere can you see to levels below about 10 kilometers up in the atmosphere. And the reason that it is so milky and opaque is because the atmosphere contains traces of what we call radiatively active gases, one of the most important of which is carbon dioxide. Others are gases like uh, ozone, water vapour, methane, and so on. Carbon dioxide is an important one, and it's one that has been varying a great deal. That is fundamental. And let me explain why it is so important for us on the Earth that we have this contrasting behaviour in the visible and the infrared. That brings me on to the so-called greenhouse effect. If we imagine for a moment an airless world, like the moon, for example, uh, that's rather straightforward. Its temperature is determined by the amount of sunlight that pours down onto its surface. Sunlight hits the surface, the moon's surface warms up. As it gets warmer, it radiates energy back to space in the form of infrared radiation, and the mean temperature of the moon is determined by balancing up those two incoming and outgoing streams of radiation. And when you do that for the moon, which is more or less the same distance from the sun as the Earth is, it turns out that the mean surface temperature of the moon is pretty cold, around minus 20 degrees centigrade. Far too cold for water to be liquid, far too cold indeed for life to have any foothold there. The Earth is different. The Earth has a layer of atmosphere sitting above the Earth's surface that contains these radiatively active gases, carbon dioxide being one of the principal ones. Well, as we've seen, the atmosphere is nevertheless transparent to visible light, to sunlight, the wavelengths in which most of the energy comes from the sun, which still gets through to the surface, heats up the surface. The hot surface then radiates infrared radiation upwards, but instead of escaping straight to space, that radiation is promptly absorbed by the cloudy atmosphere, cloudy at infrared wavelengths. The warm atmosphere in turn re-radiates some infrared back down to the ground and some eventually diffuses up to the top of the atmosphere and so escapes to space. It's rather like taking the Earth and wrapping it in an insulating blanket so that heat is trapped near the surface. The result of this so-called greenhouse effect is that the Earth's surface is a great deal warmer than it would be without an atmosphere. In fact, the mean surface temperature of the Earth is not minus 20 degrees, it's closer to plus 15 degrees. And interestingly enough, that is very close indeed to the optimum temperature for living things to thrive Colder than that, their metabolism slows down. Warmer than that, and the complex chemicals that uh, uh, life depends on starts to be, start to break up. 
So the greenhouse effect is an extraordinarily good thing and uh, uh, we indeed depend upon it for our well-being, for our survival, our very existence. But of course, you can have too much of a good thing. If we start boosting levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, then the greenhouse effect becomes more and more effective and instead of a mean temperature of plus 15 degrees we start looking towards a mean temperature of plus 16 at the moment, maybe plus 17, maybe even as high as plus 19 degrees by the middle of uh, this century. And that starts to create uh, some real problems. So... We've seen that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere appears to have been increasing. Where has that carbon dioxide come from? What's the origin of that extra carbon dioxide? And of course, as you might suspect, it's no coincidence that the rise in carbon dioxide levels began more or less at the same time as the Industrial Revolution, when large-scale burning of fossil fuels uh, started. So let's have a look at uh, carbon in the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth's atmosphere is quite extraordinary compared to the atmosphere, I think, of all the other planets in the solar system, in the sense that it's not permanent. All the other planets have atmospheres which are essentially fossils of their formation. In the case of the Earth, all the constituents, all the major constituents of the Earth's atmosphere are recycled on a quite short time scale. So oxygen is generated by plants and used up when uh, animals respire, when people burn things and so on. Even the nitrogen, the relatively inert component of the atmosphere, is recycled every 15 million years or so, taken out of the atmosphere by various plants with nitrogen-fixing bacteria in their roots and turn into protein and eventually return to the atmosphere when that protein decays. And carbon dioxide is part of that. We talk about the carbon cycle. Let me remind you of that. I've divided this diagram into two bits, which I've called natural and human, which is a rather sort of artificial distinction. But anyway, let's go with it for the moment. Uh, Before the human race uh, really got going... This is the situation we had, that uh, plants take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, they combine it with water in photosynthesis to create organic matter, uh, leaves and wood and all the rest of it. Uh, That then enters the food chain and goes on to provide uh, 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 living material throughout the, uh, the biosphere. Uh, At the same time, when uh, animals respire, when plants die, when animals die, carbon dioxide is released back into the atmosphere. Something similar happens over the ocean. Plankton in the surface waters of the ocean photosynthesize, make organic matter. A lot of that is returned to the atmosphere when they die. A little bit is taken out of the system when it falls to the bottom of the ocean and accumulates in the ocean sediments. 
the result is that the average molecule of carbon dioxide spends about five years in the atmosphere before it's taken out, turned into organic matter, and eventually returned. Now let's look at the human side of this. Uh, since the Industrial Revolution, we've been tapping into a huge reservoir of carbon in the form of coal, oil, natural gas, and so on. When we burn these fuels in our cars, in our power stations, and so on, we convert that oil into carbon dioxide and water vapor principally, which goes back into the atmosphere. So we've got an extra source of uh, carbon. Not a huge amount, but it's enough to uh, shift the balance. So something like um, uh, 6.2 gigatons of carbon per year are emitted by human activities, probably more than that now. Uh, About three gigatons of that is accumulating in the atmosphere. About three has been taken out over the last century by natural processes. Uh, But that imbalance means that levels of carbon dioxide start to rise. Uh, This quantifies those sources and sinks uh, rather vividly. Um, uh, Perhaps surprisingly, uh, the natural carbon cycle is huge, something like uh, 700 gigatons a year going into the atmosphere and being taken out by living processes, compared to the 26 gigatons per year put in by humanity. But as I say, that is enough to shift the balance, and there we have the level of carbon dioxide rising. Uh, Incidentally, other sources that you might think of, for example, carbon dioxide emitted by volcanoes are absolutely trivial, about 1% of the human emissions of carbon dioxide. What I've told you about, to my mind, presents a prima facie case for us to be quite alarmed at the prospect of climate change, of human impact on our climate. The more thorny question, and I'm moving now from the greater certainties to the less great certainties, um, is how much of that change are we actually able to see at the moment? Let's have a look at uh, whether climate change appears to be real. Well, the obvious thing to do is simply to measure the temperature of the Earth and, uh, uh, and track it. Well, that's not as easy as you might imagine, actually. Uh, our problem is that uh, uh, the surface of the Earth covers a whole range of different environments, of different temperatures, different weather, different seasonal types, and so on. Uh, we've only had a good network of measuring instruments for, well, really a few decades and a very patchy one before that, and none at all before the middle of the 19th century. So uh, it's quite a complicated business trying to estimate the global temperature from the patchy uh, and sporadic measurements that we have. Uh, This is the best that we can do. Uh, The lines show the annual mean temperature uh, for each year. And the first thing you'll notice is that the temperature of the Earth is apparently quite noisy. Some years are cold, some years are warm, and that's true right back into the past. But we can look at a trend through that. This is a sort of 10-year running mean here, these lines here, which give us some uh, estimate of the way the background mean temperature is changing. 
And you can see that uh, it appears that at the present, the mean temperature of the Earth is something like a degree warmer than it was uh, back in the middle of the uh, 19th century. Uh, It's not been a a uniform and smooth rise, and in particular there was a, um, a funny event in the middle of the 20th century where temperatures stabilized or even dropped a bit, And I can talk about that in the questions if you'd like to. Uh, But certainly since the uh, um, 1970s or thereabouts, uh, we've been on a pretty steeply rising curve. The very warmest temperature, annual temperature, was in 1998. Since then, the temperatures have been a bit lower, but it's not true to say, as I read sometimes, that temperatures have been falling since then. You can see that's an exceptional point on a generally rising trend. So on the face of it, it appears that the Earth's mean temperature has been rising. It's important to recognise it's not rising at the same rate everywhere. Uh, This map shows the uh, temperature trend since 1975, that rising part of the curve. Where it's red, the temperature's risen a lot. Where it's pink, not so much. Where it's blue, it's even gone down a bit. And you can see that there are certain places, for example, Scandinavia, China, parts of North Africa, where the temperature has risen strongly. There are other parts, like the tropical oceans, where the temperature has only risen rather slightly. And there are even parts over the southern oceans where it may have dropped slightly. That, again, is one of our difficulties we have in discussing global climate change. Global change does not equal local change. What other evidence have we got? Well, there are many things that I could talk about and I haven't got time to, but let me just show you a couple of examples. Uh, Glaciers. This picture shows a a major mountain glacier in Austria. It's at the foot of the Grossglockner, the highest mountain in Austria. It's called the Pastetzer Glacier. And this is a picture taken in 1875. Uh, A huge valley glacier fed by hanging glaciers on the mountain sides, Um, and uh, a very major feature. Uh, Some of you may have actually been to the site of this. It's uh, very close to what's called the Grossglockner Mountain Road, and they do coach trips up it for holidaymakers. That's in 1875. Let me show you the same view from the same place in 2004. Uh, The Pastetzer Glacier has essentially vanished. The Grossglockner is still there, but the hanging glaciers on its side are uh, mere remnants of what they used to be. The glacier itself has disappeared. In fact, they've built a dam for a hydroelectric scheme where it used to be. Uh, The main glaciers retreated way up the valley, several kilometres up the valley. Uh, And this phenomenon can be seen in virtually all the major mountain ranges of the world, whether we're talking about the Alps, the Rockies the Andes, uh, the Himalaya, and so on. The only place that I know of where there's been significant uh, glacial advances is in New Zealand, and there are perhaps special reasons there. Storm surges, rising sea levels. Uh, As the Earth warms up, sea levels rise, This is partly due to ice melting, but only partly. The major effect at the moment, at any rate, is merely the thermal expansion of seawater as it gets warmer. 
At the moment, we think sea level is rising at about a rate of half a metre per century, which may not sound very much when you're living here, what, 100 metres above sea level or more. Uh, If you live in a place like Bangladesh, it's much more serious. You'll recall a couple of years ago, uh, storm surges in Bangladesh, which flooded uh, vast areas of the country, left people homeless. Um, As sea levels rise, so these storm surge events get more and more frequent. And if we look at a map of Bangladesh... Uh, something like 17% of the area of Bangladesh is less than one metre above sea level, and getting on for a half the country is less than five metres above sea level. So a rise of uh, half a metre per century really has big implications for a country like Bangladesh. So... What can we look forward to if the present pattern of uh, uh, warming continues, carbon dioxide continues to rise? Well, we can look forward to a warmer world on average and a wetter world because a warm atmosphere holds more water vapour than a cold one. So on average, it'll be warmer and wetter. But it's important to recognise that that is a global statement, not a local statement. And there could be wide variations in different parts of the world. That is one of our areas of uncertainty. We can make more confident predictions about global temperature change, but trying to say what will happen in northwest Europe or Bangladesh or what have you is much more difficult and much more uncertain. But uh, just talking for the moment about global temperature rise, I know people think, well, a two-degree temperature rise doesn't sound very much. I wouldn't mind it being two degrees warmer. Uh, It's actually quite profound in its implications. Um, uh, A one-degree... No, let me stick with the two. A two-degree temperature rise um, is roughly equivalent to all our latitude zones shifting... Uh, towards the pole by 500 to 1,000 kilometres. So in very crude terms, it means that somewhere like southern Britain would start having uh, the sort of temperatures, the sort of climate that one might expect in present in southern Spain. And four or even six degrees, well, it, it, it's, it's much more extreme. It's been estimated by people who uh, look at agriculture and, uh, and so on that a two-degree temperature rise globally is perhaps the most that would leave our world more or less as it is with similar patterns of agriculture, vegetation and settlement and so on. Uh, that would be achieved by something like 450 parts per million of carbon dioxide. Uh, We started with 280, we're now at 387, so we're a good part of the way to that 450 parts per million. However, uh, the best predictions that we can make are suggesting that the temperature rise at the moment is probably heading for rather more than two degrees. Uh, uh, Met Office recently produced some predictions of four degrees by 
2060. Um, four degree temperature rise would be a dramatic change to our world. Large parts of the world would become uninhabitable. Large tracts of currently agriculturally productive land would become uh, more or less useless in terms of, uh, of agriculture. And we can imagine what the implications of that would be in terms of mass migrations, fights over resources, starvation and so on. Let me just take a moment to look rather further back in the past. Uh, a lot of people say, well, carbon dioxide has always fluctuated in the atmosphere. Temperatures have always fluctuated. It's all part of some grand natural cycle. And really, we shouldn't get too alarmed at what's happening at the moment. It'll all reverse soon enough. Let me try and put that into context with, with this picture here. Uh, this extends the diagram I showed you at first, which showed uh, carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere over the last thousand years. That's what's in the inset there. And it takes the same data, but it goes back over the last half million years. Uh, we can do this, actually, with quite a degree of uh, certainty by drilling ice cores in the Antarctic and Greenland ice caps. As you go down, you go into ice that was formed further and further in the past. That ice has air bubbles trapped in it. Those air bubbles contain, as it were, a sample of the atmosphere at the time when it snowed. So the further down you drill into the ice, the older it becomes. You can count how old it is. Of course, you get an annual ring each year in the ice as the uh, snow uh, falls in the winter and melts in the summer. And so we can go back, well, in the, in the thickest parts of the Antarctic ice sheet, we can now go back a million years, but this diagram uh, goes back half a million years. And what you can see is that levels of carbon dioxide have indeed fluctuated over that half million years. Sometimes they're higher, sometimes they're lower. Up they go, down they go. And we've got something like four such cycles in the last half million years, roughly a 100,000-year period. Uh, the air bubbles in the ice can also tell us something about the temperature, uh, not of the whole Earth, but of the air that the snow fell from, uh, by analysing the ratio of different isotopes of oxygen in the air sample gives us a handle on the temperature. And you can see that when the carbon dioxide levels were higher, the temperature was warmer. When there was less carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, the temperature was colder, and so on. Uh, so we actually see the greenhouse effect uh, fluctuating as levels of carbon dioxide have fluctuated. The point I want to make is that nowhere in this last um, half million years or so has the level of carbon dioxide been significantly higher than the pre-industrial 280 parts per million that we started with in the first diagram. Uh, perhaps a little bit there, a little spike there, but by and large, the maximum that we've had has been around 280 parts per million. It's dropped down to as low as 200 parts per million um, in uh, these periods. What we're seeing here, of course, is the fluctuations through the recent ice ages, 
the warm temperatures are what we call interglacials, and we're in the middle of an interglacial at the moment. Uh, uh, the low levels of carbon dioxide and cold temperatures correspond to the advance of the ice sheets in the ice ages. Uh, the last ice age, of course, finished some 10 or 20,000 years ago. What we are doing is pushing carbon dioxide in precisely the opposite direction, right up here, in fact, right up here now, to levels that are unprecedented in the last million years, probably in the last several million years. That's why I described that graph as alarming at the beginning. Uh, we are pushing the Earth into a state which it's never been in, not not for uh, recent geological history at all. And uh, uh, it's very hard to see any natural cycle that takes us from that down to this level. The other point I'd like to make that starts moving us away from science and takes us into economics and uh, social elements. Where is carbon dioxide coming from? Who is emitting carbon dioxide? Uh, I always think this is a very educational diagram. It's a bit out of date now. It's based on data in 2000 and, uh, sorry, 2003 and ought to be updated now. But nevertheless, the broad picture is, is, is interesting. What this diagram shows is the per person emission of carbon in the form of carbon dioxide um, uh, split between different parts of the world, different countries and uh, continents. So uh, the USA, the average citizen of the USA emits about 5.5 tonnes of carbon dioxide per year. The average uh, person in the uh, European Union emits just over two tonnes. Uh, the average Indian, at least at this time, was putting out 0.3 tonnes, something like that. Uh, and the global average emissions are just over a tonne. That's shown by the dashed line there. And, of course, what you can straight away see is that over half the emissions globally are produced by uh, less than a quarter of the people. And so we have this huge imbalance. And, uh, of course, uh, our difficulty now is that uh, uh, countries such as China, such as India and so on, are aspiring to the same sorts of standards of living that are enjoyed in Europe and North America. And uh, if everybody was emitting at five and a half tonnes per year, then we'd be putting enormous amounts of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And, of course, what the uh, abortive discussions at Copenhagen were all about was uh, trying to find a way of limiting the total uh, carbon emissions in a way which is acceptable to people down here as well as people up there an extremely difficult problem. And that introduces a whole new aspect to the uh, discussion, which is to do with economics and morality and ethics and so on. Well, how can we predict 
what the future of planet Earth is going to be. And doing that involves two predictions, both of them difficult, both of them uncertain. Uh, The scientists have to understand the climate system better. I've presented necessarily in this lecture a very simplified account of the processes which determine the temperature of the Earth. Lots of other factors are involved as well as levels of carbon dioxide, of course. And these factors all interact with one another. Uh, We need to have much better understanding, particularly of the role of clouds in the atmosphere, uh, the way in which the oceans and the circulation of the oceans affects the temperature of the Earth's surface. And uh, that is the subject of a huge scientific effort at my old department and other places as well. But we've also got to worry about the economics and uh, politics. The scientific predictions of climate change have to be underpinned by estimates of future carbon dioxide emissions. Uh, What assumptions do you make about which nations will emit how much carbon dioxide? What what technological changes, for example, switching to uh, so-called renewable energy sources what impact that might have on carbon emissions and so on. Uh, That really is crystal ball gazing and it's extremely difficult. Uh, uh, People have used a whole range of different scenarios to try and estimate the range of possibilities that we might face during the next century. And let me say a little bit more uh, about some of the uncertainties in climate science. The Earth's climate system is an extremely complex and uh, difficult system to understand. And there are enormous uncertainties. I've concentrated a bit on the global mean temperature. Uh, What the politicians and you and I really need to know is about regional climate change. How will the climate of southern England change? How will the climate of Europe change? That is much more uncertain, much more difficult. It's not just temperature that matters. Equally important are changes in rainfall and precipitation. I said that we look forward to a warmer and wetter world, and that's true over the globe as a whole. Locally, though, some places which are currently watered are likely to become arid, other places are likely to become unpleasantly wet, and deciding which those are going to be is one of the bigger uncertainties in our climate predictions at present. Increasingly, we have become aware of the need to understand the role of aerosols, clouds, dust, particles of one sort and another in the atmosphere. Clouds and uh, dust particles and so on can act both as greenhouse agents increasing the warming. They can also act to reflect sunlight back to space and so cool the Earth. The balance between those things is poorly understood. And finally, we need to go back into the past. If we're going to understand climate today, we really want to uh, be able to understand past changes in climate 
and uh, there's been an enormous amount of work, some of which I showed you in that last but one picture, trying to estimate what's gone on in the last few thousand, last few uh, uh, million years on the Earth and why those changes have been the way they are. Those are all uncertainties which need addressing, but I don't think they detract from the, uh, the primary message which I would leave you with, we know that carbon dioxide levels are increasing and increasing rapidly. We've got every reason to be alarmed by that. And if we want to say it doesn't matter, we've got to come up with some very good reasons why some very fundamental physics is wrong or inapplicable. And let me finish by getting away from science and being emotive just for once. Uh, I'd like us to finish with this iconic image, I think, of the 20th century. It is, of course, the picture taken from one of the Apollo spacecraft of the crescent Earth rising above the arid, airless wastes of the moon. And when we look at this picture, we recall that that, uh, that crescent covered with a thin skin of air and water, about the thickness relative to the whole planet of the, as the skin of an apple is to uh, an apple. That thin skin of air and water is our world. It's what we depend on. It's where everything we know has ever happened. All art, all science, all knowledge, all literature, all religion, and so on, is contained in that when we look at this picture, I think we move away from the old idea of the natural world being a great hostile impersonal force to be uh, tamed and put to good use. And we start to recognize that our Earth is a fragile, infinitely precious, infinitely beautiful place. And we need to cherish it. Thank you.